um, depending what your day was like today, some of you may be wondering um, how what you're doing here has much to do with um, loving kindness and friendliness for yourself. Sometimes it escapes the experience on the first day, especially if you're new to it. And another common question comes up in my mind every time I begin a metta retreat for myself is that if it's true, which it is true, that loving kindness, this friendliness, is a natural expression of who we really are, of our truest nature, if it's more true than our experience of separation, why do we have to work so hard? to try and have a fleeting moment of experiencing it. You know, why do we have to work so hard to learn to recognize and trust it? So I want to more or less talk about those two things tonight. It's true, as Sharon said, that friendliness, metta, I will probably mostly use the word metta just for reasons that we've talked about before, just easier. Um, It's true that it is a natural, spontaneous expression of the truth of the deepest nature of all of us and that it's also, it's natural. It's not some esoteric, incredibly blissed out experience that you can only know if you're deep in absorption because that wouldn't make it quite universal, would it? It would make it much more conditional than it really is. The experience of metta, connectedness, friendliness, is the natural response of our heart to a situation when we're really open and present. So, for example, if you're outside today and you see a small child running and playing and bouncing with a ball, and you're present, the natural response, you don't think about it. What's that kid doing here? Who are his parents? What's his background? You know, what's he thinking about? It's just a natural sense of friendliness, you know, non-judging, happiness. We just feel our empathetic connection to that child. Or if kids don't do it for you, puppies or kittens or whatever particular species of being, you know, that if you're present opens your heart. You don't have to try and make that happen. It happens naturally, but not always, right? And that certainly isn't the natural, spontaneous response in most situations. So why not? So if you're the same situation, you're out walking today and there's a small child laughing, playing, having a good time, but you're in a different state in some way self-absorbed. You're hurrying to get to lunch. You're just starting to feel maybe the tendrils of a nice concentrated state, you know, or you're worrying about something at home, or you're thinking about how you could, you know, have brought a better raincoat or whatever. And you either don't even notice the kid, or if you're in an aversive mood, you know, what's he doing screaming and yelling? He's wrecking my possible concentration. Or if you're in a worrying mode, it's, you know, where, where the heck are his parents? What's he doing here anyway? Is he abandoned? Is he an orphan? You know, we go into whatever our stories are. And those stories, 
that reaction stemming from our self-involved state of mind and heart at the moment actually block the sense of connectedness. There's definitely more of a sense of separateness, of fragmentation in that case. We kind of get locked in our mental world. And they seem so real. Never mind that you get locked in 17,000 different mental worlds in one day. Each of them seems so real. Much more real than the underlying unity, underlying all of our differences. This sense of connectedness, this unity, is much more real and true. But we don't tend to notice that as readily. We get more involved often in the seeming differences, in our habits, in our um, tendencies of reaction that increase the sense of separation and fragmentation. What's interesting, and we discover this both in Vipassana or insight meditation, as well as in the loving-kindness meditation we're doing here, any of the other three Brahma-viharas, that Sharon mentioned this morning, we begin to discover that this experience we have, seemingly ongoing, of however you experience it personally, whether it's fragmentation, separation, isolation, loneliness, neediness, fear, whatever, it's actually due to a misperception of who we are and how things really are. This is from Joko Beck. Our misery stems from the misconception that we are separate. Certainly it looks as though I am separate from other people and other phenomena. And as long as we think we are separate, we're going to suffer. We're going to feel that we have to defend ourselves that we have to find something in the world that will make us happy. And by the very acts of doing this, having to defend ourselves, having to find something to make us happy, the continual making of separation in our mind strengthens and continues this illusion, this suffering state that we can so often find ourselves in. And for many of us, the illusion of the separation, of the need to find something somewhere to finally make me happy, to protect and defend myself from all the bad things out there that could happen, that certainly has been more familiar. It's more um, reinforced by the culture. It's the experience when I don't pay attention, it's what the mind most easily and naturally falls into. And since it's familiar, one tends to take it as real. So the whole point of our practice, our metta practice here, is to consciously help us to not keep falling into this habit of delusion, of illusion, of separation. Each moment that we experience some metta, some connectedness, just basic friendliness, don't go out there looking for bliss, just that friendliness of all the kids playing, you know, natural connectedness. 
each moment that we experience that with awareness, that we recognize it, that's the moment where we're seeing through the idea of the fragmentation, the illusion of the separation. It doesn't mean that I can't tell the difference between me and the child playing, you know? We can have ideas about what unity or connectedness means that don't make sense to our rational mind and get caught in trying to think our way into it or out of it. It doesn't quite work. What our practice does is help us recognize over and over and over the the visceral experience of connectedness, of unity, of simple, open-hearted friendliness so that we begin to trust it more. And maybe we trust the illusion of our fragmentation, our isolation. Maybe we begin to trust that a little less. Maybe we don't think of ourselves as trusting fragmentation. But look at where your mind goes and look at how we make decisions and look at the conclusions we jump to just automatically. We do trust it, you know. So we need to learn to actually trust the connectedness, to trust what Chogyam Trungpa used to call our basic goodness, a much deeper truth of who we are than all the superficial differences that we perceive with our normal seeing and hearing, smelling and tasting. And we practice because hearing about it, believing about that things are really different from how we perceive them isn't enough. Certainly hasn't been for me. The difference between, oh yeah, that really, that really is true. I think that makes a lot of sense. The difference between believing the idea, liking it, accepting it, the difference between that and knowing for yourself, from your own experience, that things are different from the seeming superficial differences That difference between thinking it's a good idea and really knowing it is awesome. It makes all the difference in how we live our lives and how we respond to ourselves and others in any situation. And so our metta practice is not about trying to create uh, an artificial state of friendliness, a kind of a static state, and then hold on to it for as long as we can. We we probably, a lot of you, a lot of us, have done that from time to time, tried to do that. (laughs) And let me tell you, it leads to enormous frustration because you cannot create a static state of heart and mind and hold on to it. You can't do it, not for long. So if you could just give that up right now, you'd save yourself a lot of grief. But what the practice is about is uncovering more the beauty of what we already are and learning to trust that a little bit more. Have a little more faith in it, verified faith, faith from your own experience. And um, for me, I've seen two basic ways that this... uh, deeper trust in my basic goodness, deeper trust that friendliness, metta, is a natural expression of who we really are. That's come about in a couple of ways in metta practice. One way, in what I was just describing, which is 
in recognizing a simple moment of meta-connectedness, recognizing it when it's arising more and more so that we don't overlook it, so that we're not you know, waiting for the big bang and overlooking the little moments of friendliness and connectedness. When you're just sitting here, it's like, ah, oh, it's just so nice being here with everybody. An openness, a spaciousness. It's not that you should go, oh, a moment of meta, let me write it down, you know, that's three today. I don't mean that. But it is nice just to know, oh, yes, we're all here together. Not so much me and them. Just notice it. It's important. It strengthens our trust, our familiarity with it. And then the second way, and sometimes it seems some days, some hours, it seems like the second way is more prevalent than the first, is that in the deliberate cultivation, as we incline our mind and heart towards loving-kindness, whether it's to ourselves, toward the benefactor today, through the repetition of the phrases, this practice by its nature highlights the states of heart and mind that um, we're quite familiar with that actually obstruct the connectedness, the states that obstruct our recognizing friendliness, metta. And I'll talk a little about them, but we basically know all too well what those states are. All the difficult states, desire, aversion, boredom, everything you can name. But that's part of the practice. As we continue inclining towards the metta, the so-called obstructions, the, the things the states of mind that we tend to believe in when we're not paying attention, that actually keep the connectedness hidden, they just get really big sometimes. But because we're paying attention, this is really where the learning comes in. When Sharon was talking last night or this morning about how what's really important on a retreat like this isn't some having some nice state you can go home and talk about, It's the learning that happens. Well, I hate to tell you, but it does seem to work that way, that a great deal of the learning that happens is about really seeing how we get hooked in these unpleasant or difficult states of heart and mind and really seeing, oh, that's how it creates separation. The wisdom that comes from that takes so much juice out of our continuing to fall back into our habitual responses that it allows the open heart to shine much more strongly, allows us to trust it more. So, just to try again a little bit to talk about some ways of what metta is and is not, And then I'll talk a little bit about the obstructions. Some of the nouns we might use to describe metta, as well as loving-kindness, friendliness, classic one is non-hatred. In the Theravada, they do tend to put things in the negative a lot. But non-hatred, that's pretty good. Non-hatred, or open-hearted connection, patience, acceptance, inclusiveness, 
expansiveness. And that one, inclusiveness, expansiveness, actually has been very helpful and important to me. Because you can get hooked into looking for some idea of what love should feel like. And a lot of times, it's actually this inclusiveness. And I said, oh, here we are, all in the room together. It doesn't feel like what you might think of when you use the word love. But if you think of inclusiveness, expansiveness, connectedness, it's like, oh, yeah, that's metta too. You can appreciate it. The word love, in this culture, anyway, in the culture I grew up in, in the popular uh, entertainment culture, it has so many connotations that just don't have anything to do with metta. Love in the form of um, passion. You know passion comes from the root word that means to suffer. Metta doesn't mean to suffer. But that love, you know, that it's not real love if you're not tormented, you know, if you're not in agony when the person that you love isn't nearby. That's not anything to do with metta, you know. But that is sometimes what we mean by love. Or this sense of yearning, you know. Like the, the, when I read about the um, chivalrous love, in medieval times, where the whole idea was based that a knight would um, cultivate this chivalrous love for a woman who was usually married to somebody else. So that meant they could never really get together. So the love was characterized in its purity by this sense of unsatisfied yearning. Metta is not unsatisfied yearning. It's not yearning in any sense of the word at all. Yearning signifies that there's something lacking, you know, that we're looking somewhere for completion. And I do think a lot of the use of the word love in popular culture has that connotation in it somewhere, even in a slight way that the presence of the other, even somewhere in the world, makes me more of a complete person. And it certainly feeds into our Western propensity for feeling uh, rather less than worthy of much of anything. Really, of all the people we talk with on retreats, I would say over 90% of the people I've talked with have have in some way some deep-seated sense of worthlessness or not being good enough or self-hatred. And it's so sad because it's so not true, you know, and because it's so deeply painful. Love in the form of yearning, in the form of needing someone to make me whole, really plays into that. The whole advertising industry, my God, you know, it's making billions and trillions of dollars off of that, that if we buy the right thing or use the right clothes or go to the right place or take the right course or whatever will be more lovable and somehow be more happy. Metta is so much the opposite of that because metta is arising from the understanding, whether it's intellectual or just from the heart, the understanding that we are already complete Metta is a springing forth from the 
internal knowing that everything is already here. This is from Mark Epstein, the psychiatrist. I think it's from his book called How to Go to Pieces Without Falling Apart. I think it's from that book. He says, When plagued with a sense of unworthiness, it is easy to feel deficient and to see the love of another person as the only possible solution to this plight. Meditation tends to work against this assumption of deficiency by restoring the capacity for connection from the inside. In doing this, meditation challenges the common assumption of our culture about where connection comes from. In the Buddhist view, connection is already present. We are not separate and distinct as we think we are. Connection is our natural state. We just have to learn to permit it, to allow it. That's a great description of metta practice. We're not trying to create connection. We're learning how to permit it, to allow it, to trust it. And I'm not saying that's easy, but it's really ultimately the source of our living from a much deeper ease and happiness with ourselves, with one another, with the world. I want to give an example of Another example of sort of a spacious, inclusive aspect of metta, but it doesn't have to be so directed at someone that we know, but the, the attitude of acceptance that's really metta. Uh, last year, I was on Maui, and with two friends, actually with Kamala and another friend, one afternoon we went to a local event it was, it was, in, it was like, in, like in a high school auditorium or a civic center auditorium. And it was called Honoring Our Kahunas, Our Kapunas, which means honoring our elders. And I didn't really know what it was. We just went to see. And it was so great. I really felt like the whole afternoon was just permeated with the spirit of metta. So what it was, was... Um, all ages were there, from small children to uh, just whole families, and it centered around several different group of elderly people, some from local um, retirement homes, some groups of elderly people from their local church, and there were several groups, so a lot of them knew each other, and a lot of the people there were their families from all the generations, but then there were people like us who didn't know anyone there. And everyone was equally welcome. And what, what the deal is that would happen is we would sit on the bleachers and group by group, it's mostly women, the groups of women would get up, some by themselves and some as groups, and do hulas. And these were women ranging from, I'd say, early 60s to mid-90s. And they're getting up all ranges of skill level and physical type and ability to do the hula and getting up and really with such goodwill and unselfconsciously 
just getting up in front of everybody and dancing very sensuously and laughing and everyone just loving it. No sense whatsoever of judgment or of thinking, how can she get up in front of everybody, you know, at her age? And I tried to imagine my mother, you know, getting up. And Of course, my mother would never do the hula, but to imagine her just getting up and being able to be just so at ease, or me, never mind my mother. Um, and to see the sense of warmth and acceptance, really, that just flowed through this room and the love. And I thought, that's really uh, a metta experience, the non-judging, the acceptance, the inclusiveness. And it wasn't hard, you know. It wasn't something one had to manufacture. So metta, whether it's towards beings, whether it's towards ourselves has this connected, inclusive aspect. And that leads into another misconception of metta, not so much the passion, the yearning, but the other side, that it's, you know, mushy, clouds and angels, and uh, what did Sharon say, a perpetual Valentine's Day, you know, everything's always nicey-nice, you know, and it accepts everything and you really don't look at what else is going on and if there's anything ugly or anything negative, you just pretend it doesn't happen, you know. So it's kind of like this false, blind, stupid way to be in the world, basically, you know. Also not true. Met is an expression of wisdom. Wisdom really sees things as they are Metta sees things actually, the mind of metta, quite clearly. It's not mush-minded at all. But again, we have to experience this for ourselves. I was teaching a retreat a few years ago for environmental activists specifically. I think it was with Sharon, this one. And uh, it's a Vipassana, an insight meditation retreat, but we would spend uh, a session each day going through the formal metta practice the same practice we're doing here, only, you know, condensed. And in the beginning, really, I did several retreats like this. Each time, a lot of the people, the environmental activists, had never done any of uh, the meditation at all, you know. And we announced we were going to do loving-kindness meditation. And you just kind of see the flinches or the groans. It's like, oh, God. And I think someone actually said, you know, to Sharon, I think it was, you know, I don't want to do that mushy practice, you know, I don't want to lose my edge, you know, out there working every day for the environment, really tough, hot shot lawyers and activists, and I can't afford to do this loving kindness mush stuff, you know, and lose my edge. And I, I don't think that's an uncommon response. I've also, as Sharon said, met many people who come to retreat and say, I don't want to do this meta schmeta stuff, you know, I don't <laughs> want to do this. And again, it's a misconception. Invariably, on this, these environmental retreats, by the end of it, because, you know, the people are tough, they stick it out, grit their teeth and do it. And that's the thing, it happens by itself. <laughs> Even if you hate it, it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> Just the willingness to incline your mind, the truth starts to shine through. And Invariably, they really appreciated the metta practice, and sometimes that's the best thing for them about the retreat. 
so we begin to discover really that the ability to love for each of us is boundless. That our happiness does not depend on having people love us, even on our external conditions, but it really depends on our ability to love. And that as we begin to contact that ability, as we begin to trust it, as we begin to see that you don't lose your edge when we begin to trust the strength of boundless connectedness, it's actually far more strong and more courageous than acting from anger, acting from fear. But again, we need to begin to experience this for ourselves. I'll just tell you one story that has been about someone I've been reading about recently who's been deeply inspirational to me. Um, I haven't met him or heard him personally, but he's a man still alive named uh, Jim Lawson, who um, he's an African American man who, in the beginning late 1950s, early 1960s, he was teaching nonviolent workshops. Uh, he's a, a minister, a Christian minister. He was teaching nonviolent workshops in Nashville to uh, some young college students who began actually the sit-ins in Nashville and then the Freedom Rides. And they actually, they, together with some other students in North Carolina, were really the beginning of the whole sit-ins, sit-ins and Freedom Rides, civil rights movement, based off of the Montgomery um, bus boycott. Jim Lawson was a deep believer in the nonviolence based on love, on our, our unity as human beings. And he had been um, a conscientious objector during the Korean War and had spent time in prison for that. And he spent three years working in India because he was a very devoted disciple of Gandhi. That was really uh, a lot of his inspiration for nonviolent activism. And I also love... I, I love the threads of how you can't pin down meta or universal love to any particular path, you know. So Gandhi, of course, is a devout Hindu. And here we are, Buddhists, and uh, Jim Lawson is a devoted disciple of Gandhi, was a devoted Christian, and it, it all just strings together. But anyway, this particular story... Um, it was at the beginning of some of the marches for these sit-ins, and they hadn't turned violent yet. And these are through the eyes of a young man um, at that time, one of the students named Bernard Lafayette. And he was, they were marching from a church to a lunch counter in downtown Nashville just to sit in and demand to be served. This is like the beginning of early 1960s, so 40 years ago. And Bernard was in recalling it some years later. He said he hadn't really felt he'd been tested yet. And so even though he had the deep belief in the power of love and nonviolence, he really didn't know how he would respond when actually faced with violence, which is you know, really honest. We don't know, do we? Do I really believe this? And that's our test as humans, isn't it? So anyway, Bernard was at the very end of the line and um, some young white toughs, like what what they would have called greasers when I was a kid, you know, with the leather jackets and jeans and slicked back hair, attacked him and started um, beating this one man. And Bernard, then the young other young man, said, without even thinking about it, 
he turned around and did what they'd been taught, which was to throw his own body over the other, the body of the man who was down and being kicked, so that that diverted the attention to him. So he did that without even thinking. Then they started beating on him. And at this point, and this is from Bernard, Jim Lawson comes walking up. And he said he just walked up, not in a hurry, not upset, not as if he was going you know, to, to fix something, just like he was coming to a day of work at the office. And he was so nonchalant that it really enraged one of those, the, the, one of the white guys being. And he, the white guy spat, in a, spat on Jim Lawson. And this is the power then. This is the metta and the connection. So, so Jim looks at him and says, do you have a handkerchief? And the man was like so just shocked that he reached in his pocket and took out a handkerchief and gave it to Jim, who just calmly kind of wiped his face. And then he looked at the man, saw what he was wearing, and said, so do you have a motorcycle or do you have a souped-up car? And the guy says, well, a motorcycle. And they fall into this conversation about what he's done to soup up his motorcycle and what kind of motorcycle he rides, and on and on, you know. Meanwhile, Bernard and the other man get up, they get back on the line, they all start walking. And at that point, the line's moved on. So then Jim joins the line and he waves goodbye to this man. He just kind of, he didn't wave back, you know, and say, so, yeah, bye. But he also didn't do anything else. And as Bernard said, that was such a wonderful example of Christian love. To me, that, that's been very inspiring, that, because it's an example to me of that's really the courage of not thinking that nonviolence and human love is a good idea, but knowing that the power of connectedness, because that's what he did. He found a way to connect with that young tough. He found a way to connect with them that they could both see each other's humanness. And that's because he so knows that we're all human, you know, that we're all connected. I mean, that wouldn't work in every situation, but it's the power of the knowing. That's real metta. That's the power of metta. Stronger than fear, stronger than anger, because it's really coming from truth. So if it's so strong, how do we get so lost in the separation, in the fragmentation, you know, in these habits of mind? Well, luckily I know it because I don't have that page with me. (laughs) Oh no, here's the other. Anyway, there's... Oh, now I messed it all up. <laughs> okay. I know. That. There's two main habits. There's a lot, and Kamala's going to talk more about them tomorrow night. But what we're doing here, moment to moment, we don't have to be at the end of a line being attacked by some racist thug. All you have to do is sit here. And look at your mind and heart when your knee starts to hurt, when you wish the bell would ring and you look at your watch and there's 22 more minutes, you know. When you go out and it's raining again, you think, oh my God, maybe you don't. You know, you're from California, it's all good, it's raining, you know. <laughs> we need the rain. That's what everybody says. Oh, I love it. We need the rain. <laughs> all you have to do is look at your mind. 
And we see the two biggest habits, and they're actually labeled in the tradition of loving-kindness practice as the near and far enemy. (laughs) Enemy of metta. I know I just finished saying metta has no enemies, and now we've got the near and far enemy. They're just words. Um, But they are um, desire or attachment. Near enemy in that we can confuse desire for metta. Just as I was saying, that kind of yearning. Um, we confuse it for loving kindness. Not just sexual desire or desire for a person. I was going to say that's obvious, but actually in your practice it often isn't so obvious. It feels sort of good if you don't really look and see that it makes you feel incomplete. It feels sort of good, we really get into it, but it's not metta. But desire is a maker of limitation, attachment. It doesn't have to be that kind of sexual yearning desire. It can simply be desire to see more of the person. Desire for a more pleasant experience of metta. Desire for the bell to ring. Or you might notice when you're thinking of yourself, you start just subtly wishing you could be a little bit different. No, if only I didn't get so distracted, I'd be more filled with metta. No, if only a really nice state happens, if only this would keep going, then the metta would really flow. Desire makes limitations, whereas metta is boundless. Even when we, we have to begin where we are, which is metta for ourselves, for benefactors, for people we know. But a friend of mine was describing how she noticed even that real open-hearted metta for people she knew, how she could see it made limitations when you limit it. She was visiting her ex-husband who was dying in a VA hospital. And, I mean, she, they had long ago reconciled and she had a good relationship with him and she was his main support. And, so, he, you know, he was fairly old and he was going through a long sickness and death. And she would go to visit him, really filled with, with metta, you know, with caring, with friendliness, happy to be there, just radiating peace and being with him. And after, I don't know how long she said, if it was weeks of going or what, it suddenly dawned on her that she was walking past rooms and beds filled with other men that she just didn't even notice. You know, she was focusing all her um, sense of friendliness and love and compassion on her ex-husband, which was fine, but as soon as she noticed that, she noticed that sense of limitation that that was, like, I only have enough metta, you know, for this guy and maybe the one on either side of him, but it can't go any wider than that, you know. The sense we have of it's too hard, too limiting. So just notice that. Notice when you're wanting something, how it shrinks our world. Notice if there's a sense of separation at that time. Do you feel really connected? Do you feel more isolated? I could tell you what what to find, but I mean, get the drift. But really look, because we have to get it for ourselves. Oh, wanting keeps the illusion of separation and neediness going. Just begin to notice the difference between wanting and metta. They're not the same. And the 
so-called far enemy, which is more obvious, ill will, aversion towards people that are difficult, towards that which is unpleasant in our experience. It's more obvious how this creates separation. I mean, that's no one's going to say, I doubt anyway, that yes, really holding on to ill will and anger against this person brings us closer together. But the kind of hook in the ill will and aversion is that it's generally the things that we actually don't want to be brought closer together with, actually, like our environmental friends. You know, I need my edge. I don't want to feel buddy-buddy with this jerk of a lawyer who's trying to cut down all the trees that I've been working to save for nine years, you know. He's a jerk, and I don't want him in my heart. So this is where we have to really begin to experience for ourselves even the willingness to begin to find a way to connect to that person, if it's another person, or to ourselves, to the things we are having difficulty with in ourselves, to connect with them. We don't have to love them in the common sense, but just not hate them, (laughs) just not push them away. This, on this environmental retreat again, one of the men who was the most vociferous against wanting to do the metta practice, was someone who was very dedicated and had been spending quite some years on a particular project, saving, working with this particular group of trees in northern New Mexico. Very dedicated guy. Really not into metta. By the end of the retreat, it was really one of the more moving experiences I've I've had of, of meeting people at, at the end of a retreat, seeing what's arisen for them. It's always beautiful, actually, at the end of a retreat. You go through so much, and the truth just shines out in a different manifestation for everyone. But anyway, this man was actually filled with anger. And at the end of the retreat, he was saying, he was crying, he was weeping, and he was saying, you know, I really see how the anger, it doesn't serve. Because I couldn't just keep the anger and direct it towards the work I was doing. It's turning into bitterness. It's leaking out on my family, on my kids. It's eating me up inside. And the method just, it's not like, oh, everything's, you know, hunky-dory forever. But it's just beginning to see there's another way. And that in the connectedness, we can actually act with more courage. Like that story of Jim Lawson. I saw one time for myself when I was doing a loving-kindness retreat, a long retreat, and I got to the so-called difficult person. And we'll tell you to start with an easy difficult person, not the worst, most horrible person in your life, just someone who gets on your nerves a little bit, you know. That's hard enough. And so this is a person who got on my nerves a little bit. And I saw it be going on. I could say the phrases easily and mean it. But then I saw it was only if he was over there. There was a moment where I really could feel as if experientially my heart would open and the person would come in and I saw myself say, no, I don't want him in there. No, thank you. It's okay if he stays over there. That was really so instructive. I said, oh, I'm really creating the separation. The problem's not him. The problem's me wanting to keep that out. And that really all you can do is notice that and boom, the separation's gone in that minute. And I, I really saw how a lot of the stuff about him that bothered me, it really is just who he is. It was just him being him, you know. I wasn't doing any horrible thing. 
was my reactivity, my aversion that was creating the separation and the difficulty. It's really quite powerful to just begin to experience it to where you can trust it. So these habits of aversion and desire, very, very strong. And we'll talk a lot more about them as we go on. But they're really some of the roots of what keep us in this dream of separation, of illusion, creating this sense of the other. You know, whether it's the other that we want and need or the other that we want to go away. Whether it's another being or whether it's the pain in your knee. Whether it's that sleepiness that hit at 2.30. Whether it's the boredom. Whether it's the, my God, if I have to say this phrase one more time, you know, I'm going to run out of this room screaming. And, you know, it may seem like a huge leap to make to be able to walk up to someone who's beating our friend and try to connect on a human level. You know, it may seem conceptually that is beyond anything I could do or would even want to do. But we don't have to start there. We really can start, not looking for perfection, but moment to moment, what comes up when you're sitting and walking here? So the moments that you don't feel a friendliness, a connectedness, when you feel or notice something other, any of the difficult things, aversion, boredom, restlessness, self-hatred, you know, you're off in whirls of desire, you're planning your 15th vacation to Bali, you're planning what you're going to, what you wish you had done on New Year's Eve, you know, you can spend just endless time in totally meaningless stuff and get completely wrapped up in it. When you notice that, how you meet that moment, that can be the cultivation of metta as well. If you meet that moment with, yes, let's continue this, let's really get lost in Bali, the hour will go faster. Okay, we're back in separation. If you meet the unpleasant experience of, you know, this really does stink, I hate it, and I hate myself for hating it, and I'm never going to be able to cultivate meta. I'm a no good, worthless jerk, you know. Okay, what are we cultivating in that moment? One of my favorite quotations from the Buddha is that, He said, what the mind dwells upon frequently, towards that the heart will naturally incline. It's so simple. It's so obvious. Well, left to its own devices, what does the mind dwell upon frequently? It's a little scary, as we start to notice here. So don't treat the moments when the metta, when you get distracted or when the metta isn't happening, don't treat those moments as lost moments. Those are the places when you wake up and notice where you are and notice how you connect to that moment. Is it with spacious acceptance? Is it with desire? Is it with hatred? Notice. Those moments are really the cultivation of metta also. Huge potential for cultivating metta and saying, oh, off in Bali again, yep. May I be free from suffering. May I be happy. May I live at ease. You know? right back, without reaction, into the metta. That's a huge potential. Each moment that we do that, never mind if you don't feel a thing, each moment that we can offer a phrase wholeheartedly 
we're inclining the heart towards metta. And we're cutting through that habit that we've cultivated for so long of either desire or distractedness or aversion. So if we can really be patient, not be looking for the big results, not looking for the big states, that's desire again. But that willingness, that acceptance, that spaciousness to simply meet this moment with kind acceptance, that's metta. Then the willingness to begin again with the next phrase, that's the concentration part. The two strands come together really in every moment. You don't have to be doing something spectacular. Just have this willingness to meet each moment with friendliness, with clarity of seeing, and to begin again. It's a choice, you know. And in more moments than we realize, we do have a choice where to let the mind dwell. Now, there's plenty of times you don't have a choice. The mind's going to go off. You're not going to usually say, oh, I'm about to go have a fantasy now about what's for lunch tomorrow. Usually you don't see that until you've already, you know, gone over the recipe for the dinner party 15 times. But that moment you wake up and notice, oh, right, I'm sitting in the meditation hall. I'm not really in the supermarket. In that moment, do you have a choice? Do I want to stay in the supermarket? Do I want to get into self-recrimination? Or do I just want to say, okay, wanting, may I be safe? Just that simple, that non-reactive. You can't force results. You can't force some feeling of expansive loving-kindness. But we can be patient. We can be simple and humble and learn to trust that if we have the commitment and the willingness to simply be present, to try and be kind, to not turn against ourselves, that the, the truth of our connectedness with ourselves, with others, will naturally begin to shine forth. And we begin to see that Metta really isn't a deluded or a blind state at all. It's really the truest expression of our humanity, our common humanity. I just want to end with this one quotation I read. It was really quite beautiful. This is from a review of a book by a woman. She and her husband were um, Harvard academics on a big career track at Harvard. They wanted children. They got pregnant. And they found out before the baby was born that it was going to have Down syndrome, a form of mental retardation. And all their friends were saying, oh, have a therapeutic abortion, you know. But they just didn't want to do that. So they didn't. And all their friends thought they were crazy. They had this baby. And she said, it turns out that this baby was the most wonderful thing that ever happened in their lives. They left Harvard, moved to New Mexico, so that they could not get so... I mean, they had careers, but that the career wasn't the most important thing. And this is the woman speaking. Um, She's talking about how she once spoke to an entering class of Harvard Medical School students about my pregnancy and my decision to keep the baby. Adam, the baby, was asleep on my lap at the time. After the speech, I was approached by an elderly professor 
He had just become the grandfather of a little girl with Down syndrome. As he talked to me, he stroked Adam's soft blonde hair and wept. He loved his granddaughter with inexplicable openness, and the experience had changed his whole life. Whoever said that love is blind was dead wrong. Love is the only thing on this earth that lets us see each other with the remotest accuracy. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. for your attention. Just one announcement. The next sitting, 9.15 sitting, it won't
Well, hello. Welcome, Bate. Welcome, Mary. Uh, this afternoon, we're going to get into a, a topic that's been um, <clears throat> on people's minds since uh, since the last time we're together. Uh, we've been together, and that is uh, where we go from here. So perhaps both of uh, both of your presences will uh, help us uh, get clear. <coughs> but before we go into it, I uh, want to say hello. Uh, <laughs> and as as most most uh, as I think everyone knows, um, you've been on retreat. Mm-hmm. Just come out of retreat to be here with us. So. Uh, we're honored um, and really delight, delighted to have your presence. Are you? Do you remember how to talk? Sure. <laughs> 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 you're really surprised if I said no. <laughs> How's it been going? Good. We've had um, there's still a bit of construction going on around the place. So that until the contractors are finished, we're just having an open routine during the day. So it's just yeah, a lot of solitary time. It's agreeable. Yeah. Yeah. just sure. Thanks. And uh, Mary, you didn't. Uh, you, you came in uh, towards the end of of the morning and uh, slipped in the back. I didn't catch you for a while and then the flow was going up mm-hmm. here. So oh, um, you were in the middle. So, um, want to say hello? Mm. Hmm. I don't think there's anything to say except hello. And I'm really happy to be here and spend this last day and a half with you. So. <coughs> so um, well, I know there's been a planning committee that's met a few times, um, which um, we'll hear from uh, in a little while. Uh, but I, I thought before uh, they went, I just wanted to share with you some some thoughts that I had and kind of maybe uh, update you on things that, that have been going on uh, as far as where we go from here. <clears throat> it's been interesting hearing the different teachers. I've been asking each of the teachers who've come and stayed with us uh, as they uh, as they end their their time with us if there's any words of offering or of advice that uh, they give to the group. And uh, a number of teachers have said the importance of staying in touch, mm-hmm. colleagues, sangha. Uh, and uh, so uh, we have to figure out a good way to do that that works for the group and um, uh, and really supports you. Here's been my thinking. I've got a few things um, that have been going around. Uh, I I kind of I see this group 
one possibility is for the group to get together once a year. Um, and at the same time, there's uh, there's another group that I'll be starting. Not clear yet whether it's the end of uh, end of this year or the beginning of next year. Um, and in fact, actually, I've been uh, more focused as far as dates and stuff on this group. Um, And uh, what I like to do, I think I put out in an email to you, is uh, I've wanted to get the, the larger teaching community more involved besides just the Spirit Rock teachers. Um, one, I think it's healthy for you to have input from people outside the radical left of uh, <laughs> the Dharma teaching world. And... Um, because uh, I, I really respect um, so many different, all the different Dharma perspectives, honestly, and uh, and also uh, just to to not have it so spirit rock focused, which also includes all the all the different uh, teachers in, in the community. Because I I would love to see this be something that can support Dharma communities. Um, that the that other teachers are involved in as well. So um, so I what I did uh, I wanted to see about having a a meeting for this group on the East Coast, and uh, I think I mentioned that Tara Brock said that she would be interested in being involved and in, in supporting you know, some ongoing way, uh, and I. I also uh, ideally uh, had in my mind I'd love to see uh, Joseph have more you have more contact with Joseph and him have more connection with you um, Sharon if she's uh, if she's uh, open to it and interested um, Carol Wilson who perhaps many of you know is a very dear friend of mine and uh, somebody who I you know, respect tremendously and who is a kind of bridge between East Coast and West Coast. She comes out here and teaches with us um, and is also starting to be encouraged to do some Dharma, uh, some teacher training uh, on the East Coast. So um, I wanted to have something happen there and ideally the one, one time that it could happen where, say, Carol and, and Joseph and Sharon, if she's uh, into it, could be uh, involved, would be before the three-month course. Um, could also be after the three-month course, although actually in January there's usually the staff staff retreat, and but it starts getting cold uh, <laughs> there after that. Um, and besides, after the three-month course, the teachers are kind of burned out. So I, so I called and uh, and just uh, put out some feelers to see if one, the study center is a possibility, and also if uh, teachers would be open to it. Um, and the study center couldn't hold everyone on the accommodating basis, but they have retreats or workshops where people come and meet at the study center, but stay in town at various motels and inns, things 
like that. Um, so I spoke with Joseph about it and Carol, and they are both open to that happening. Um, and I want to share with you some delicacies uh, uh, about this as well. There are some um, some Dharma politics to be worked out as well. Um, and there's, there, there are some valuable things for you to keep in mind as I just explained a little bit of the, the, the Dharma politics. Um, uh, by the way, I, I spoke with um, the study center and Andy uh, Olinsky uh, and I had a really nice conversation. You probably all know Andy Olinsky who's the head of the study center and who's who's um, a scholar, uh, uh, the Pali Canon and the suttas, and he's, uh, he's quite open to, to us being there, and in fact, uh, would be even willing to rearrange some, some dates for uh, uh, that things had been planned for us to be there. So it's possible. Um, and I invited him to participate as well. So here's here's the thing, uh, just to be uh, uh, straight about it. We all know this is an incredible program, right? You know, not just because of any one person, but because the because it's supposed to be, because the group has just manifested so beautifully and and supported has supported each other and all the great Dharma work that that you've been doing around the country. Um, but not everybody knows what has been happening here, and different people have different concerns. And here's two main concerns from outside of our teaching community. One, who are these guys? Who are these community Dharma leaders? <laughs> yeah. Remember that that was the first the first question. What is a community dharma leader? Well, now it's more. Who are the community dharma leaders? And uh, people don't know uh, don't know you like uh, like I know you, and the, the teaching community knows you. You know, well, are you really qualified to be sharing the dharma? What? And you, you're shaking. <laughs> Gina's shaking her head. No. <laughs> but as Hillel said, you know, if if not me, who? Uh, if not now, when? And for some reason, you've been invited and have been doing a beautiful job. But there is that concern. Who, who are these people and are they qualified? Um, what are they doing? And it's, it's not just uh, what are you doing with your communities, but what are you doing with your practices? And a number of people, Joseph and uh, a few people have said, uh, Eugene, I think in his closing words, was saying, uh, make sure that your practice is the forefront of your Dharma work. And, uh, I spoke with Sharon, who, who said, you know, just one thing that she would really hope is that uh, you consider yourself Dharma students uh, even before Dharma leaders. Because as Joseph and Jack were saying today, it's so seductive. 
isn't it? And that identification with role, which we've been talking about since the beginning, will be an ongoing issue, you know, even you know, for people who've been leading retreats for 15 years, it's an issue. So it's really, it's something for you to keep in mind and also it's something for you to know that other teachers outside of our community are also keeping in mind and, and watching. Um, and the, uh, another concern is the parameters that, um, that we have an understanding or agreement upon. Um, when we started, the uh, it was it was spelled out that this was to uh, to authorize or encourage or support people to be teaching classes, beginning classes, um, ongoing sitting groups, day longs, and weekend retreats, and um, obviously. There is a tremendous need and demand, you know, and your communities might say, hey, you know, let's do a two week retreat. Well, let's do a month long retreat, you know, let's really go for it. And there's a need there. And we, we might, out of really caring, um, want to respond to that need. But that raises flags for people, it really does. So I know some people in in uh, in this group, even before the group started, I can think of one uh, uh, who's actually no longer uh, in the group, uh, had been doing some teaching before coming to the group, and we didn't want to uh, exclude or say no, you can't do what you were doing before, and and a, f- a couple of teacher, a couple of people, a few people here were um, invited by teachers to teach retreats with them. Um, But it is a very delicate and tricky subject that uh, that people are watching and that I think uh, you should be aware of, not just for your own um, sense of Playing within your what's the the sports phrase? Playing within your game, you know, um, knowing what your your healthy limits are, but for the whole program, this current group, and future programs as well, that it's it's something to take uh, quite seriously, and the temptation will be there. Um, coming from the best possible intention, but it does um, it does cast some question for some people on uh, on the program and what we're doing. So anyway, those uh, those were some questions before we actually uh, that, that those kinds of questions or concerns had to be uh, have had to be addressed before the study center can just uh, slot us in. And I've done what I can to start to address those concerns. And I'll I'll share with you what I've done. 
um, I wrote a letter, uh, emailed a letter to everybody in the larger community whose email addresses I've had, um, explaining what the program has has been, what's happened, and talking about the next program, the next group. And what I've uh, what I did was uh, ask for people to give uh, names of candidates for the next group because. One, I wanted to get as many good, qualified people as possible. And two, I've also wanted to have them buy into the program and realize that this is, this is not just a spirit rock enterprise. This is, this is a, our, our, t- our Vipassana community. Uh, it can be a, a program for all. So, um, and what I, I said was, um, uh, please give me the names for the next program if you're interested by the end of January. Um, and then at the end of, of that time, I will post all the names that have been submitted. This is, I'm talking about for the next program. So this, I'll just, uh, I'll come back to you in a moment. Uh, I'll post all the names. I'll send them out to everybody again. And if anybody has any reservation, let me know. So at least everybody will see, okay, uh, in the next program, people seem, seem to be qualified. And um, I also said in that letter uh, that I heard that there, are, that there might be some concerns that people have about the program, about this program. And when I say this, I don't, I don't want to get you really paranoid. This is just Mostly, people feel great about this program, but all of the little niggling things have to be cleared up before it's just you know before there's there's no you know, no doubts. Um, so I said, please, if you've had any concerns, I'd like you to tell them to me because I want to really do the best job I can in creating this program, and I'd ra- I want to learn and have your input and your guidance rather than having you have some question in your mind and not, um, and we don't have the benefit of it and it might color your whole perception of what I think is, uh, is quite a good program. It's gone quite well and there's a lot of good Dharma work happening. So, um, uh, so I've, I've welcomed that, invited it, uh, and uh, one person who had some concerns um, sent a very nice email and also asked if I could hold seven slots for the next group. You know. So that that's the kind of thing that you know, as they start feeling more connected, you know, and and this is something again that we've talked about in your community. If there's any kind of grumblings out there, although it might be not an easy thing to do, invite the feedback. Because in the long run, it's going to serve you a whole lot better anyway. It's going to be the, the talk will be going on. You might as well hear it straight on, and then you can deal with it. So, um, so I'm kind of uh, figuring that, and I said, please contact me by the end of January. So I'm figuring if people don't have concerns other than uh, the ones who shared them with me, or if they do have concerns and haven't talked about them then they've had the opportunity to and they just haven't moved on it. And actually that's felt pretty good to people like Joseph and Carol, you know, that at least have given 
given that space for that to happen. So that kind of gives you a sense of, you know, the, the delicacies of, you know, uh, kind of uh, after a while learning a little bit about Dharma politics. And uh, uh, I guess the, the essence of it is uh, just have a smile on your face and welcome feedback and say thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, James? Yeah. Um, by the larger community, do you basically mean the IMS, Spirit Rock community? IMS, Gaia House, Spirit Rock. Um, I've emailed people in Europe, in uh, South Africa, and there was a big teachers conference in uh, in the summer and got a lot of email uh, addresses. So just everybody in the Vipassana community worldwide that, that I know. Um, so there's a possibility of us getting together in um, in September. That's if if it were to be done on the East Coast. Uh, if if it uh, and the, the the dates that I think tentatively uh, we were looking at were September. Uh, after a two-day sit here with the teachers, that might be free. Like September, I think twelfth, which is a, a Tuesday, on for you know maybe uh, from Tuesday to to you know, Sunday or something like that, Tuesday or Wednesday to to, to Sunday. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at on that end. Um, the 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 thing is if that. If that happens, then probably I will start the next program, uh, the next CDL program in January uh, here. And I told Marianne to save save some dates for, for us to do that. If it doesn't happen at the, at the study center or for whatever reason that doesn't happen, then I would be more inclined to start the next program in the fall here, and one other possibility would be that we come back here in January um, instead of going to the East Coast. Okay? And again, I, I said, Marianne, hold some dates, and I don't know whether it'll be for the next group here in January or for this group in January, and we'll do something with the other group in the fall. I yes, I I would love to see that be uh, part of the process. Uh, where uh, I'd love to see this group having, you know, ongoing contact with each other, whether it's the, the listserv or website that's uh, that's being discussed, and also a connection with uh, the continue with the new group. And I could see, you know, at some point having retreats with just CDL people, you know, annual retreats or something like that. And actually, I should, I should say just on a personal level, the thought of coming and leading, you know, uh, or being part of leading a week-long retreat here, for me, is great. I schedule a few retreats a year, and this would be, you know, a wonderful retreat. It's a bit different when it involves coordinating, you know, 
teacher involvement and, and uh, presentations. So I just want to put that out to you. Whether it's here or even, you know, I travel, even if it's going to the middle of the, the country or on the East Coast, doing a, a, a retreat, a silent retreat, I'd love to sit in silence with you, you know, do a talk in the evening or whatever we decided to do. So I think I'll stop for here. The, the only other thing before we, the planning group goes is at some point, whether it's... Uh, uh, this afternoon or later on, I want to look at the whole issue of uh, mentoring and what that um, what that will look like for the continuation of this group. And I mentioned in that letter to the uh, to the, all the to the larger uh, teacher community that when they nominate somebody as a candidate for the program, that they it's not just oh yeah this person asked me and uh, you know, good luck with them. It's that you feel good enough about them, I said this to the teachers, that you would be, uh, you would consider being a, a mentor for them or take some at role of active support. So uh, hopefully that will, that will make it so that the people who are the mentors for the current group, if there's been a good mentor relationship, don't have to take on, you know, five more people and also, again, more involvement from from the teachers uh, outside the Spirit Rock community. Yeah. One question, Jake. I, I certainly see the political reason for doing that, and I think it's been extremely wise, but you know, then it seems like it kind of puts the teachers uh, recommending people that they know real well. In other words, people that are in their group, mm-hmm. and it kind of uh, does away with what I thought was your original intention was that the people who are in groups who don't have access to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but the thing is that when a teacher um, teacher recommends somebody, it's not necessarily that it's somebody that that they're in the same community with. It's people that have been on retreats that whose practice they really value. In fact, that was... Uh, that was mostly what what I've been encouraging people whose practice warrants and whose whose natural paramis warrant them being dharma leaders. But as a little extra incentive, I said, you know, think about uh, besides that, if there are people who you could find uh, to be of real support for your local community who can fill all the requests that you can't do. Um, so there is two ways that teachers would. Would uh, would recommend people, and, and you know even the question of the whole mentoring here has as you know has come up. You know it's sometimes it's worked really well and sometimes less well. And we can take a look at that um, when we explore that issue. So anything else that you want to ask me before the uh, the planning group goes ahead? They they've asked for about an hour to uh, to explore and present. Any other questions? Yeah. Well, just to follow up with blueprint, I've had to see that communities around this issue. I, I started the question just to save and I guess put out to you because you're involved, which is it, it is an issue in communities without teachers getting um, support. I mean, it's a real, it's a real problem. And it's, you know, I feel like it's mostly just karma that we end up in towns where there isn't a lot of um, teacher support. And uh, I know people feel that way, that uh, 
somehow, unless you move, you're really not going to get it. It's harder and harder to get experienced teachers to come out. Mm -hmm. So it's just a problem. I just want to put it out there. And one of the few ways of alleviating it, even if it's relatively small, is getting the CDL training and having other people get it. But, uh, so, so what would that... I'm not quite sure just... Um, yeah, what, what what that would look like or what, what well, you're just asking. I bet if you look at who teachers nominate, uh -huh. I bet you the great majority will be in the local Congress. I mean, I may be wrong, mm -hmm. but take a look and, and see. I'm not talking about this group. I'm mm -hmm. talking about the group coming. I see. And if you see that happening, mm -hmm. then I would really look at what Rosemary has said and see if there's some other way to... Uh, stay connected to the communities that don't have a lot of people involved. I see. I see. That's great. And and actually, uh, another thing is a, a few. There have been a few places like uh, Washington or New York or uh, uh, Colorado where it, there's been a benefit having a few people work together and kind of having a critical mass. That um, so I could see if if it would be really helpful if you're kind of alone, you know, orphan out, out there in, in the wilderness and there's somebody else in in your community who's got really strong practice, you know, to consider them for the next program. Ideally, it, and so I'm, I'm open to those uh, suggestions. Ideally, if they were, a, they were people who, um, who knew, had some relationship with some teacher so that the teacher... Uh, could sponsor them, but you know I, I, I'm still open to other possibilities. About the are you saying that now you're opening up the up to the whole of the Pasadena community everywhere uh, as to their concerns, and if the concerns aren't major? That will be the go signal to continue what is going on. Yeah. We will. We'll continue. We'll continue what's going on one way or another. It's more. Yeah. It's it, you know the East Coast branching out. That that's. I just there needs to be an opportunity for anyone's concerns to uh, to be heard. And did you did you send that letter to say someone like? Actually, uh, he's. N I don't. I didn't include him. He's not on my email. But I'd be happy well, to. When I was just wondering about including all of the Yeah. Communities. Yeah. That's. Uh, and I'm not really taking a stand for mm -hmm. but I see that now you're going to be um, communicating with a much larger mm -hmm. uh, body of people looking at you. Well, they're looking anyway. I'd rather have them look on from the inside than the outside. What's that? You just really are opening it up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, why not? Uh, this group, I, I also, I sent out a letter to everyone, IMS, Gaia House, and Spirit Rock. And uh, there were a few people that were nominated through uh, through IMS and Gaia House, um, there were a handful. There were a number of people who were nominated or whose names were given, and I s and I sent 
uh, applications to and uh, never even never heard from them you know they just kind of like I think put it in the waste paper basket or whatever um, so that, that that was that was a little statement right there but there were some people you know Claire was nominated from a few people uh, on the East Coast and uh, um, yeah Tamara and, uh, and Sandra also so you know there there's been some involvement but and people have appreciated it from the outset but I just wanted to open it up and include them on the inside James I'm curious your, your concern about the nominations for the next round of people coming from kind of via teachers is that so that they kind of taking care of the politics of it so that it's like everyone's coming through a, a sort of approved channel it's uh, it, it's twofold. One, because I respect teachers' mm. uh, uh, estimations of, of people's practice, uh, and also to include them and give them a chance to, um, you know, say what to have input into the pro- program. Uh, I, I would I would feel that there's, there's actually quite a lot of the groups here that. Um, they would people would recognize within their own community mm-hmm. very worthwhile people they might not have been spotted mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. various teachers because mm-hmm. you know if you're, if you're coming in and you're teaching a retreat for a hundred people or eighty people it's like and you've got a ten minute interview every couple mm-hmm. of days it's like hey you know mm-hmm. it'll be pretty sharp to yeah <laughs> <laughs> to say oh this is a good one you know <laughs> so uh, I would I would I would tend to get encourage more weight coming from the input from, from these guys mm-hmm. to the people that they're actually kind of working with and, and sort of functioning alongside of, rather mm-hmm. than having that as a sort of, wow, you know, if you really think it's... Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I personally, I, I feel that was worth more weight. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, that's, that's good to hear. Like, and, and like I said a moment ago, I, I'd be open to that, but uh, in so far, I've been, I think, more... Concerned about teacher buy-in. I keep getting other teachers on board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I'm. You know, that makes sense. Uh, we talked about this a little bit last week. And, uh, someone in our community came up to me after I'd given the talk on that. I, I really want to be a teacher. I want to be a teacher. How, you know, how did you become a teacher? And. Um, I'd like to sort of hear a little bit about my impression of the traditional way that one becomes a teacher is that one teacher says, get up, go out there and teach. You know, not, gee, boss or you know, guru. You know, I, I want to go and teach now. And that's not really the way it goes, right? It's right. just from the top down. Sort of tapped. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like you're trying to use that model in a more structured way by yeah. saying, you know, make these formal recommendations and we'll send them applications and all, all that. But you're, um, and yet, you know, I, I do hear this thing that there are communities where maybe even the community should nominate some, you know, a group. Mm-hmm. 
out there somewhere. I don't know how you know about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, I just, I mean, this is a puzzling piece here because it might be that there'd be somebody in your community that you would know better than we would know, but let's assume this person has done a fair number of retreats and a lot of practice. If you brought them to the attention of a teacher, you know, like perhaps it's someplace that James has traveled to a lot, then both could make the nomination. It seems highly unlikely that there's going to be somebody whose practice is fabulous, who's done gazillions of retreats, and there's not a teacher anywhere who knows them. I mean, that just doesn't seem possible. Yeah. And, and uh, I would... I would really want there to be uh, whoever would be doing the program to be steeped in intensive practice. Um, so, you know, I'd say at least you know five years experience and five retreats, like at a, at a, at a minimum. Um, and what you you raise a point that actually a lot of teachers, you know, just have to deal with all the time. You know, I want to apply for the job. No. Where do I sign up? If you knew how many people asked, uh, I hear Jack Cornfield has a teacher training program. How do I find out more information about it? Um, Where do I apply? You know, if I if I had a, I wouldn't need Donna if I had a, a nickel for every time that that came up. But uh, the and one of the things actually it, that the teachers asked for because it's been awkward for them, even teachers outside of the Spirit Rock community been saying, you know, I've had a number of people say, I want to join the Dharma Leaders program, and it's a little awkward saying no. So I actually said in in the letter that there's officially uh, a limit of two slots per teacher. And if you have more than that, then, um, you know, we can, uh, you know, I I consider it, but that'll be a a simple way to say... um, you know, my slots are filled. I need to mention something, but I don't see what the problem is with both. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, again. It would be like also be submitting names with no assurance that there people whose names they submit are going to make a final cut. Right. Right, and and the January thirty first was just something I wanted to I wanted to start sending out applications for for new people, uh, but it's not a hard and fast deadline. Anyway, that's mostly about the next group, and I, I want to bring it back to to this group as well. Yeah. And I, I did that last time, actually. I asked specifically teachers who I knew went to certain areas um, consider somebody from this area or that area. And uh, these are the names that, that came through. 
So, but yeah, I, I definitely have in mind, like when uh, before New York happened, uh, Tamara and, and Sandra uh, were, you know, just, uh, I think the last, last two people to come in the program. And I really wanted to have somebody from New York because, you know, that's my hometown. And, I, you know, <laughs> and they need it there, you know. So, I, and then, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that, that Gina, and, you know, there'd be that, uh, that critical mass there, but that's, that's one of the, you know, really great delights, everything that's happened in New York. And that just kind of happened in the last, the last moment, really. So... I certainly want to look for, for areas that, that need some support. And Soren, who started out as local, ended up in New York. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>